Will you guys stand to your feet and welcome Pastor Jeff Knight. We got lots of fun stories. Jason and Beth, Beth is right over here. I saw you. I told the last service, Beth, what I always tell you, that you're one of my favorite people on the planet. And I know we haven't seen each other a lot since you moved over here, but your position has not been occupied by any other. She's an amazing human being. She loves people. She takes care of people. She took care of me, took care of my family through a really challenging season. And uh, I just honor her and I love her so much. So, so good to see your face. So, um, so good. They gave me uh, an incredible gift one time. Incredible gift one time. I, um, I'd went through a, uh, how, anybody been through a challenging season in your life? Okay, so we're all, we, I just went through a challenging season and uh, it took me a long time to admit that I might need to actually go get some perspective some, from somebody that didn't know me and that maybe was qualified to give me some counsel besides just my buddies that I'd talk to at the shop late at night. You know, your buddies are good. They get you through a lot, you know, and sometimes you can talk to your wife about some stuff. But you know what? When you get like, when you get mad about stuff that you just shouldn't get mad about over and over and over and over again, you probably just need to go get a perspective from somebody that doesn't know you. And uh, so I jump in an airplane after church on a Sunday and I fly down to this place called the Blessing Ranch in Colorado. And there's a guy named Dr. John Walker who like, like if there's a guy that defines the, what God looks like, uh, it's Dr. John Walker to me. You can Google him. He's an incredible doctor and he has helped scores of pastors from all over the world just put some stuff in perspective. And he helped me with that. Well, about Wednesday, we're supposed to be there five days. Wednesday, Jason calls me. Jeff, I got this hunt. I got this hunt. Can you leave this week? And I'm like, bro, I'm in Colorado. He's like, I don't care. Bill and I will be at your driveway midnight on Friday. It's Wednesday at 5 p.m. I got like 20, I got like 30 hours to get home. By the way, I paid thousands of dollars to see this guy and my wife's there. And I'm like, Mel, what should I do? And she's like, I think you should go. So I go to Dr. John and we're kind of through the heavy lifting. And I'm like, Dr. John, I got like this once in a lifetime opportunity to archery hunt for trophy elk and the seven devils of Idaho on horseback for free. Did I mention the free part? And he's like, I think you need to do it. And so we changed my ticket. My wife stayed. Then she talked to all Dr. John about everything that needed to change with me and got me all fixed up <laughs> when I got home. No, but so I get home. I get home. I land. I go to my storage unit because it wasn't hunting season. Wasn't it like August? It was like August. I go to my storage unit, which I had to jump the fence because there were like hours. And I get my hunting stuff and I'm running through the neighborhood with my bow and my, all my, and lo and behold, Bill and Jason in the pickup truck at the end of the driveway, midnight on Friday. I slept like three hours. We drove all the way to Riggins, Riggins, Idaho, up this mountain. It's now from midnight. It's now like, I want to say one in the afternoonish, maybe 11. I don't know. Time meant nothing. And they go, okay, strap your gear to these mules. We're riding in. It was 14 miles on a horse. I hadn't ridden a horse in 20 years. 
So you talk about the movie Trains, Planes, and Automobiles? John Candy got nothing on me with Trains, Planes, and Automobiles. Got horses and mules and Jason's driving. Like, honestly, that is a movie right there. But um, the next nine days after the experience with Jesus and Dr. John and my wife, the next nine days would be some of the most prolific, and it's hard for me to say without crying, some of the most healing, prolific moments with God. We had nine days of hunting. I walked 92 miles in nine days. I lost 23 pounds. My, my 24-year-old, by the way, I was 44. My 24-year-old guide on the last day said, you know, my knees are really hurting. Could we not hike as much today? And I'm like, yeah. Yeah. When I can put the 20-year-olds in the ground on the hunting trip, I'm feeling, I'm feeling pretty good about myself. But no, the Holy Spirit met me every day. I actually video chronicled it every day from the top of some mountain in the middle of nowhere. And they're the only videos that still are on my phone where I don't have to download because I go back at times when I feel that, that frustration that I felt back then. When I feel that, I go back and I watch. See, one of the greatest challenges that we experience in Christianity is we forget how dark it was when the lights get turned on. And then all of a sudden, we live in this life that's bright, and all of a sudden, it's not bright enough. And so we find our way. My mom used to say it this way, son, don't ever forget from when she came. Like, like you were in desperate need of salvation when Jesus saved you. Don't ever forget how in need you were, even when life gets grand and blessed and good. Man, I, I encourage you this morning, there's one thing you listen to. It's this beginning part. Don't forget from when you came. June 3rd, 1978. I'm seven years old. My dad was a rock and roll radio station like salesman, so he sold advertising. Slash professional motocross racer. He owned a um, Boltaco. Those of you from the 70s, you would know the motorcycle brand from Spain, known as Boltaco. And if you still follow motocross, you know that Husqvarna came back about 10 years ago. Gas Gas came back like two years ago. I'm, I'm waiting for Boltaco to come back. That'll be cool. So my dad's a pro motocrosser. He's working at a rock and roll radio station, and it's June 3rd, 1978, and at 5 p.m., a Snohomish County Sheriff shows up at our front door, knocks on the door, and my dad is arrested right in front of me. He went to jail that night for nine counts of theft and two counts of forgery in some white-collar crimes. Basically, he would cut deals with companies to advertise on the radio, and instead of reporting all of the spiffs, to the IRS, they'd just take the spiffs under the table and only report the cash. And when the radio station got audited by the IRS, guess which way all the dung slides? To the bottom. And he was at the bottom because he was a sales guy. And so that's what, they, that's what they came to deal with. And he went to jail that night. He was not a Christian. My dad didn't grow up in a Christian family. We weren't a Christian family. We didn't go to church. In fact, it was quite the opposite. Um, those of you that know rock and roll, you might have heard of a band called Tower of Power. You all know Tower of Power? So our next door neighbor was Tower of Power's road manager. He was also my dad's drug dealer. And so when I was five and six and seven years old, I would wake up in the morning on a Saturday where normal kids would go out and turn on Looney Tunes and watch Woody Woodpecker and watch, you know, 
Wiley Coyote and the Roadrunner do their thing, I'd be climbing over the people that stayed over the night the night before that I had no idea who they were from the drunken parties that would take place after the Tower of Power concert. And so when my dad got arrested, it was rock bottom. Rock bottom for him, rock bottom for me. I didn't know it. I was seven. I was just trying to have fun and learn how to ride a motorcycle. I just wanted to race like my dad. I tell people all the time, my dad taught me to race before he taught me how to pray because that's what he did before he got saved. So it's not a mistake that I went back and raced because it was in me. So 10.30 at night, my dad rolls over in his jail cell and he looks to heaven and he says, I have made a mess of my life and I don't even know if you can help me. He said, but if you can get me out of this and help me through this season, I will serve you the rest of my life, whatever that means. He was face down on his cot. He was broken. His mom wasn't there to save him. His dad wasn't there to save him. His family wasn't there to save him. His race team wasn't going to save him. His radio people weren't going to save him. All of his fast cars and Altec Lansing speakers and everything that he thought was so great in this world couldn't save him. He's face down. He says, now if he were here, he would, he would, he would, he would confirm this story. He says a light shone about him. There was nobody in the jail that night. He was alone. And a hand touched him on the left calf. And he said, I just knew that it was the light of Christ. And I knew it was the presence of God. And I gave my life to Jesus at 10.30 p.m. June 3rd, 1978. Now fast forward the clock an hour and 15 minutes. My mom is home alone. And they'd, uh, she'd ushered me off to Graham and Grandpa's for the evening, but then she brought me back to put me to bed. So I'm, a be- I'm asleep in the other room. My mom is in her bed. And my mom had everything, but she had nothing. She married the man of her dreams. She had this great career that, that kind of financially supported my dad and all of his wild, you know, things that he was into. My dad was cool. You just want to hang out with him. He was so cool. He wasn't super smart, but he was cool. I shouldn't say he was really smart. He was actually accommodated in the Air Force. He was a spy during the Vietnam War. When he went to do missions work in Russia, the State Department told him not to go because the KGB still had him on their watch list. And so he didn't go to Russia. He went to uh, uh, Western Europe. Um, But he was super smart. He just wasn't wise. How many know there's a difference between smarts and wisdom? Yeah, yeah. So... He, he was super smart. He just wasn't wise. And, 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 and so my mom, she was, she was really into like spiritual things. You probably know somebody like my mom was. Like, like she knew everything there was to know about like Eastern religions. And like she'd read the latest, whatever, you know, whatever the guru was pitching. She'd like read it, take what she could from it. They, they used to have like sit in circles and put their fingers and thumbs together and say om and chant peanut butter as mantras. I, I, like, seriously, I watched this stuff when I was a kid. It was very weird. Very weird. 11.45 at night, her knight in shining armor's in jail. Her, seven, her seven-year-old son's asleep in the other room. She has everything, but she has nothing. And she looks to heaven and she says, if you are really real, I need you in my life right now. And she said, I had chased every form of spirituality known to man but the one thing that none of them could give me 
was what Jesus gave me that night. And that was peace. My mom and dad got saved on the same night in different places, never hearing the gospel preached. Never hearing the gospel preached. Apparently, I have a great-great-grandfather who was an itinerant Methodist preacher, but I never heard him preach, so I cannot prove or fact-check that situation. But the bottom line is, God in His sovereignty, and God in how God moves, saw it fit that on that night, He was going to change the destiny of me. Because whether you think, Mom and Dad, you're making decisions for you, you're more making decisions for your children. Because I was seven years old sleeping in the bed, oblivious to how bad our life really was. Monday morning comes, my mom had sold her prized horse. My mom was a horsewoman. She'd sold her prized horse on Saturday to a friend to get bail money because she, she was done with the marriage and done with my dad, but she wasn't gonna leave him in jail. How many know that's a good woman? So she shows up at the courthouse and my dad's brought up the elevator and they're taking him um, kind of through the lobby up to fingerprinting and to booking, whatever they do before they release him. And he gets off the elevator and she's standing there by chance. And he walks up to her and the, whoever was with him allowed him to do that and they had this exchange. And he said, I have to go up and get fingerprinted, but I'll come home right away and get my things and move out because I assume we're through. He said, but I have to tell you that something happened in here. And she said, is it Jesus? And he goes, yeah. And she goes, me too. And they embraced in the lobby of the Snohomish County Sheriff's Office. And it would take about 10 years for them to walk out the carnage of my father's decisions. And in that time, a lot of drama would take place. However, on June 3rd, 1978, this seven-year-old boy was put on a completely different trajectory. There's some of you men in this room after this weekend, you are going to reshape the track that your children race on. There's some generational things that need to break off your heritage and lineage. My dad come from a family of swindlers. Guys just trying to do just enough, but get way much more. And that was what God broke off of him that night. He's my hero, you guys. How do you not follow a guy that changes his life from the worst of times into God and what God has for his life for the rest of time? How do you not just say, my dad's the greatest dad ever? He is. And I followed in his footstep into ministry. I talked about that a little bit, but on June, or excuse me, January 31st of the year 2000, my mom and dad returning from a missions project we had in Mexico, they died in Alaskan Airlines Flight 261 off the coast of Ventura. At 4.36 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, I got a call at a recording studio where I was playing guitar we went out, we turned on the Coast Guard helicopter and the snowy picture of Como 4 in Seattle, the Coast Guard helicopter hovering over the water. And the anchor said, Flight 261 has gone into the Pacific Ocean. 
I turned to Rachel, who was with us. She was one of the singers and did some of my dad's booking and stuff for his travel. And I said, is that their flight number? And she just said, it is, Jeff. It is. She was just pale. I would go on a journey, you guys, for the next several months that was unlike anything I could have ever asked for. I was 29 years old. My sister was 16. I immediately became a dad overnight. I was a pretty darn good brother, but I had no idea how to father a 16-year-old. You know, people would come up to me and they would say platitudes like, man, I guess God just needed two angels in heaven. And I'd be like, my sister kind of needs her dad to walk her down the aisle at her wedding. I don't, my mom, my mom would be really helpful in prom. You know, I know they meant well. I know they didn't really understand. But I would go on this journey, this journey that would take me to some really heavy places, spiritually. Trying to, that's why I was, that's why in 2014 I was with the doc. Because I did it on my own for 14 years. But there were some, just were some areas that I just couldn't, I couldn't figure out the heavy grief. The, I never asked God why. You know why? Because it doesn't really matter why. It happened. What's it take to get through the worst day of your life? Come on, guys. What's it take to get through the worst day of your life? It takes what it takes. But sometimes in it taking what it takes, it also takes a toll. And I found myself in the summer of 2001 just really in a pretty heavy place. I had some heart issues going on, 31 years old. I'm going to the ER, getting hooked up to EKGs more than twice in the summer. I'm like, this is a broken life right here. Like I'm 31, I'm like, in, should be in the best shape of my life. I should be like climbing mountains and hunting and riding a motocross bike and doing the things that I love to do and pastoring young people. And all I, I'm working, I'm working like 16 hours a day. I'm just doing what it takes. Because if there's anything my dad taught me to do after his salvation experience, he taught me to just, you got to do what it takes, Jeff. If nobody teaches you, go figure out how to do it on your own. That's why I love Google. Problem with Google is you don't have to ask a friend. And so, you know, I remember before Google, I'd have to like call my grandpa. Grandpa, teach me how to do this. When my dad was passed, I had to call my grandpa and my grandpa would show me. Now I just Google it. But my grandpa passed away too. So like the bottom line is, is that, is that in life, sometimes we're deal, dealt these heavy situations. I said to the last service, I said, what if you had five minutes left to live? What would you say? Or what if you were on the first mission to Mars? What would you tell your family before you zipped up your suit, strapped on your helmet? and boarded that ship. Because you know, the first mission to Mars, they're probably not coming home. I don't mean they're going to die. It's a long trip. I don't know if they can carry that much fuel. Nobody knows. I mean, if Matt Damon tells us anything, at least you can grow potatoes there. <laughs> if you haven't seen that movie, that's a great movie, Martian. Makes me laugh. I watched it in the pandemic a lot because I felt like I was on Mars. And there were Martians living in the bedrooms of my house. <clears throat> you know, Jesus, like Matt Dillon, how many remember Gunsmoke? I remember going over to my grandparents' house after school and I'd, I'd sit down on the couch and my grandpa would have Gunsmoke on. And Marshall Matt Dillon, it was always the same story. 
like the villain would get away with all kinds of stuff and then the marshal would step in and then there'd be what? A showdown in the streets and then there'd be a gunfight and the villain would take one to the stomach. He always had time to like give his last rites, like say what was most important, like ask for forgiveness. I mean, we know that is not the real world. But it seemed like every night on Gunsmoke, that's how it ended. Guy got to say, what? have you ever thought about your last words? Better yet, have you ever thought about Jesus's last words? Acts chapter one, verse eight. He's having a conversation with his team right before he's gonna ascend into heaven. I mean, Jesus didn't die in the, in like the villain did in Gunsmoke. We know he didn't die like that. Like he's living eternally at the right hand of the father, right? But he's ascending. It's his last words kind of like face to face. He's going to speak through a, to us through his word and he's going to speak to us through the spirit from here on out. Make sense? And this is what he says. He says, but you'll receive what? Somebody say power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses. Say witnesses. Telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Like that's our job. I told this story last service, but I, I'm not a coffee drinker. Anybody here, you don't drink coffee? Like, I'm not a coffee drinker because you have to put it in your mouth. I, I, you give me a cup of coffee and I will smell it all morning. I love the smell of coffee, but for whatever reason, the taste of it is repulsive. It's repulsive. Anybody like that? Or is it just me? There's a few of you. God bless you. God bless you. I'm not alone. Like literally, that's like one in five people can't stand coffee. I know that all of you that are on it, <laughs> I, I know that you think we're strange that don't like it, especially you baristas. You baristas. So what can I get you? Um, not coffee. Gets in my mouth. That's my go-to line. Oh, well, have you tried it with um, peppermint? Why would you ruin peppermint? <laughs> right? Like, Oh, did you have the chocolate, nut, soy, non-fat, drippity-drip, caramel drizzle? <laughs> this is not an ice cream sundae. <laughs> like seriously, baristas are so psycho about trying to get non-coffee people to drink coffee. You know what I'm saying? Like if you don't drink coffee in here, you know, you know my pain. Like, I'm like, can I just have an Italian soda so you'll stop talking to me? You know what I'm saying? Like, like okay, I'm gonna take my little raspberry coconut with cream over here now. And then I'm gonna sit down and everybody's looking, that's the guy that doesn't drink coffee. And I started to think about that whole experience one day. And I started thinking about the last words of Jesus Christ. And I started thinking about like, like, like the church sometimes is like that barista. You don't like Jesus? You, you don't want him in your life? You don't want to, what's the matter with you? We have lights and smoke Jesus every Sunday at our church. We have professional worship Jesus. We have celebrity preacher Jesus. Like, let's just add a little bit of small group and some connect group and some, some rubbing your back at the altar. And I'm telling you, you will definitely love Jesus. I'm serious. That is Christianity at times today. And I began to learn something different on my journey. 
I was, I was, I was, I was healthy and well and leading. And God gave me the grace those first couple years to do something that really I look back on and it was nearly impossible. People say to me sometimes, Jeff, do you remember, you know, that one church service in 2002 when so-and-so got miraculously healed? And I'm like, no. Because the first three years after that plane crash, I was literally just going on pure adrenaline every day. And there's whole segments of my church growing that I don't even remember. And it's very strange. The sad thing is, is I remember the seven button suit phase. Because I love me some Bishop Jakes. And Bishop Jakes in the late 90s, he was like seven button suit. And I had no identity in the pulpit. No understanding of who I was. My dad had gone. I wasn't getting feedback from my mom and dad. So for a while, man, I'd just go down to Leroy's in Seattle to where all the pimps bought their suits. And I'd buy seven button suits and I'd bring them home and wear it in the pulpit at Monroe. And I look back on those pictures and I'm like, who are you? And I'm like, I know who you are. You're a barista. <laughs> you think your clothing makes a difference if they're going to like Jesus or not. So you can see I was pretty jacked up. <laughs> I found myself at a racetrack because a friend saw kind of some of the things we were doing and he's like, hey man, Evergreen Speedways in the same town as the church and wondering if you want to get involved in the race car. And I'm like, man, I don't know about sponsoring it, but Melinda's like, you need something in your life besides everything we're doing. Because literally I'm watching my man that I married like 11 years ago. I'm watching him lose his soul. And, and, and for right reasons, man, my parents died in a plane crash. I was on the news every single night. Snopes started an article about me, about I made a story up about how my mom was preaching on the plane. Snopes doesn't know that the actual director of the NTSB called me and said he would not confirm nor deny the story. Like I was getting hate mail from all over the world. I don't know where my email address got published, but I went through a series of about two years where checking email literally would send me into like shakes. Coincidentally, I don't use a lot of email now, except for subscriptions. And then I have to pay for a service to get rid of those emails so I can see the actual emails that I actually need to see. It's such a strange world we're living in right now. But my point is this, is I found myself at a racetrack. And I told the last services, I was walking up and down pit road and I was looking at all these people and they all lived within like a six, seven, 10 mile radius of my church but I never saw them there on Sunday. And I said, why? Why don't these people like Starbucks? I mean, the Rock Church. I mean, we have video, lighting, altar calls, miracles. We have all the stuff, but they're here at the racetrack. And then somebody started a race car. And if you've ever smelled, 110, octane, Race fuel made by Sunoco after it burns through an 800 horsepower, 600 horsepower engine and you stand by the exhaust and it goes in your nose, you understand why they're not a church. (laughs) I put race gas in my lawnmower so I feel like racy while mowing the lawn. (laughs) I'm telling you, you put race gas in your generator and your tools run better. I'm serious. (laughs) 
I'm serious. You put it in your car and you'll be like, man, get as many stoplights as I can get to to smell the burning fuel. Every window down. Melinda's like, geez, I don't want my clothes to smell like this. I'm like, baby, that's beautiful. It's beautiful. No, just kidding. But it was pretty cool. And so we got involved in this race team and I started putting stickers on the car. It's like all I knew how to do. Like, you know, I know that most media people at the church are like, they're the ones that change the stickers. And I did the media for my mom and dad, so I changed a lot of stickers. Like, we seem to change the stickers a lot in church, or we make new stickers. So I was good at stickers. And so I put stickers on the race car, because that's all I knew how to do. I loved the car. I loved how fast it went. And then we put the Rock Church on the car, because what was I going to do? Put, like, Jeff? No, that's dumb. I liked the people. People told me years before that like I should give up those things that don't bring glory to God. And so I did. I gave them up. And when I stepped onto that track in August of 2001, I realized that I liked racers. And I realized that my dad made me one years and years and years ago when I was six and he bought me a motocross bike. Like I am a racer. I was a racer before I was a pastor. I was a racer before I was a Christian. I was a racer before I knew how to pray. And there's something just primal and important about me being here. Not being the barista behind the counter, but being the customer sitting with the people drinking Italian sodas. And I realized I really like these race car people and they cuss a lot, which is a challenge sometimes for me. Don't lie, it's a challenge for you sometimes and then sometimes you do it and then you're like, what is happening to me? And so I'm at this racetrack and the next weekend we have a men's event and my driver who's not saved, but he's my friend, he says, do you want me to bring the race car to the men's event? Well, of course I do. Will you start it in the sanctuary at the altar and let us worship to the smell of race fuel? Because songs sing better. When race fuel's in the room. And many men got saved. But my driver didn't know the Lord. And then 9-11 happened. And on 9-11, the next weekend, there was a big race. And so we made, they asked me to pray because I was the only pastor at the Speedway. All the other pastors on Saturday night were prepping their message for Sunday. And I get that because that's who I'd been. But on Saturday night, I was standing with a microphone in front of my whole community. And I was praying for 9-11. I was standing there in my Jeff Gordon coat, Rainbow Warriors for all you NASCAR fans. And I was just praying. And then that night, my, my car raced with Roger and he was driving it. And the next morning when I was leaving the track that, that late that night, I said, hey man, you guys, I know it's 9-11 and we're gonna do some things at church tomorrow to just never forget the fallen and honor people. And you know who was there that next day? The crew chief, the car chief my driver, his wife, his kids, a couple guys from some other teams. We had pews back then and they took up like two rows of pews. And I was like, oh my gosh, here they are. It's, we're honoring 9-11, but here these guys are and these gals. And I give an altar call. And the guy that I'd known since I was five years, in the fifth grade, our dad's coached basketball together. He walks the aisle with his wife and he gives his life to Jesus. The car chief gives his life to Jesus. 
The crew chief didn't want to have nothing to do with Jesus. I mean, you got to take the wins where you can get the wins. And you got to keep working on those people that reject you. And it was just different at the racetrack after that. It was always different at the racetrack. Last, last, last service, Corey DeYoung was here. He lives down in medicine something or other. Spokane. I'm from the west side. I'm sorry. Don't know all the names. Somebody's saying something that makes sense and I can't hear it all the way. Okay. <laughs> I met Corey's dad through racing. And he and I became really close. And then the Oso slide happened. And Corey's dad did not take his boots off the ground of the Oso slide until every person was, set, was found. And then Corey's dad died of a massive heart attack in his own front yard. And then I did a memorial. And the whole racing community was there because Corey DeYoung was a racer and a logger and a first responder and a Christian. And then Corey brought his family. And then Corey raced his dad's car with some other guys and some of those guys got saved. And I tell people all the time, my congregation Saturday night at, at Evergreen Speedway is larger than, one that'll, larger than the one that'll show up tomorrow. It's just the one that'll show up tomorrow does the heavy spiritual warfare lifting for the one we're reaching on Saturday night. But in my eyes, y'all, they're one and the same. I'm not just a coffee maker. I'm a coffee customer, Italian soda maker, Italian soda customer. Don't get caught up being on the, the barista, trying to pitch your deal so much that we miss what's out there in the real world. I realized at one point I've been surrounded for almost 10 years since college with just Christian messages, Christian books, Christian music, Christian school, Christian education, Christian friends, Christian conversation, Christian restaurants. And I realized standing in the pits at a racetrack, there's a whole world out there and they desperately want to know that Christianity is real. And that's not what they usually think because there's a cultural narrative that says Christians are weak. There's a cultural narrative that says Christianity is a crutch. There's a cultural narrative right now that Christians are racist. There's a cultural narrative right now that Christians don't care about climate change. There's a cultural narrative right now that, that Christians just care about birth. They don't actually care about life. There's a, Christian, there's a lot of Christian narratives about you right now. Does it not bother you? Because it bothers me because the men and women that raised me in the house known as my home, my mother and father, they were warriors. They went out onto the, the battlefield of American culture every day and rescued people and grabbed them out of darkness while the thief was walking about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. They were fighters. They were gladiators. I happen to be just the kind of man and the kind of leader that just wants a church full of people that realizes that what's happening outside the walls of our church is something that desperately needs us to not try to force feed them what we have, but we try to connect them on the level. Nobody was ever judged to love Jesus. They were loved to love Jesus. And we got to get out there and we got to get in their lives. And I want to say this to you. The message is not separated from the messenger. Can I show you a quick video about my, my, my last little while racing? Roll the, the, the short clip, not the fire clip, the short clip. I wanna show you this. 
so I'm not showing that to like puff up the racing in any way. I'm showing it to show you that Christians too can get all the way into other people's worlds. You're not going to lose your salvation by crossing over the line and going back to whence you came and rescuing people regardless of what they have been through. Just don't forget from whence you came when you go back into that place. Now, I admit there's a couple times. Jason mentioned one. There's another one. His name is Luke. He's 15. He's learning how to race these cars. It takes a lot of work to put a race car on the track. How much work does it take? It takes what it takes. If you don't do what it takes, you'll just be slow. And I cannot stand being slow because there's nothing worse than the pastor being the, you know, the, the, the patty cake, you know, the, the person, the, the guest of honor on the racetrack. I don't want to be the guest of honor. I want to win. And if you're throwing down, I'm throwing down. And if you put a bumper to me, I'm putting a bumper to you. And it gets like that sometimes. And Luke is just learning. And we're on the big track and he dive bombs me going into turn one and I am firewall deep in the fence. And that means that the wheels are up by the dashboard and your car is J-U-N-K. And I am so mad that I ripped the steering wheel off it and I'm going to his pit because I'm finding the nearest pit crew and I'm shoving this steering wheel through somebody's teeth because it's a cheap shot move and it should never be done. But he's a 15 year old kid. So I can't find anybody. They all scattered. Must have saw me coming. I'm pretty tall. So I walk from turn one and two all the way to turn three and four. Pastor Jeff, Melinda showing up. She's coming in behind me because she's like, I got to save him right now. He is definitely in the red. Definitely in the red. So she's walking with me and I'm down there and I'm literally standing on the wall. This is how God works in my life and how he'll work in your life. When you go back into the arena, this is how he will rescue you when you cross the line. And I'm standing on the edge of the wall because if I step over the wall, I'm getting fined and I lose points. So I know better than that. I'm standing on the wall while it's red flagged and he can hear me. And I am yelling at him and I'm telling him what a rookie he is and how bad he is. And I'm holding my steering wheel and I'm yelling and I'm yelling some more. And then my wife says, that's enough. Yeah, that's enough. And I turn around and I turn around and there's his dad. I walk by his dad. And the Holy Spirit grabs me and says, you are a growing a man. That is a 15-year-old kid that if he was in your youth group, you'd be speaking to the king in him, not the fool in him. Yeah, got you, Lord. I went back. I loaded my broke junk back up into the trailer. And I went to church the next day. And I repented. Because you want to know the tricky thing about going back in? It can become your idol if you let it. And as for me, I put away my idols. He's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then I ate some humble pie 
when I saw his dad and him the next time, and I walked up to his dad and I said, Dad, I should have never spoken to your son like that. And I apologize. See, we think that once we're out and we're saved and we're the light of the world, that we can screw all that up. I don't think authenticity screws anything up. I don't think it does. If you make an error, God will remind you. He will set you back on the straight and narrow. He made an easy path for you to find your way. Because the truth of the matter is, guys, you cannot separate the message from the messenger. I can't separate the barista from the nasty product she's trying to force down my mouth. (laughs) Got some coffee lovers in here. Don't hate on me too much. I feel prophetically that the soil and atmosphere and culture of House of the Lord is in a really important time for explosive growth. When I showed up at the men's camp a couple nights ago and I entered into worship with you all, I was so glad that I came when I did to experience what the Lord is doing here. I feel it. Jason's told me about it. Bill has told me about it. Michael has told me about it. My friends that live in this area now and are a part of this church, they've told me about it. I watch online. I grab a snippet here. I see a post there. Jeff and I have been connecting on text and the phone the last couple months. Joel, I follow Joel, and he's one of the best Facebook follows in the world. He had this one post, though. Today was a full situation at church, and I'm still going to ask him this afternoon, what does situation mean in light of that church service. But I feel as though you're at this precipice. And I'm going to take a little bit of a risk here because I do not, I'm not sat with the staff. I do not know the culture intimately and it would be unfair for me to make any assessments about that other than what I feel in this atmosphere. But I feel you're at a precipice where revival will either stay in the house or revival will reach outside the house. And some of you enjoy revival in the house as it's fed to you by the atmosphere and culture of this church. And you are the exact ones that are to go outside the house. I know Jeff loves a lot of things, but Jeff can't take up a whole bunch of things in order to go reach people. But if you look at the collectiveness of just this room right here, in addition to the last room, you guys know a lot of people that don't like coffee as it's been presented to them their whole life. Some of you are worried that they've bought the cultural narrative about you so you stay quiet. 
And I would say to you by the Spirit of God that the Lord has already prepared the way. That this area is ripe for people that maybe have believed the narrative that Christians are buzzkills and judgmental, Jesus freak, goody two shoe, Bible thumping, scared of anything different than them. Holy Spirit is already disarming that narrative because there is real pain in this region. And if you would just receive this word, but in your vernacular, go find your racetrack. Go stand with those people. Not to sell them something that they already know tastes bad, but to just be you and who God has created you to be. And I believe you will see a massive influx of new families, new people, fresh anointing, fresh fire, fresh grace. Do you receive that this morning? I want to pray for you. Stand up on your feet here. Stand up on your feet, church. If this is your church, I want to say to you, this is your hour. This is your hour. Just lift your hands to heaven. Father, in Jesus' name, God. Lord, there's a fresh God grace coming, God, for evangelism in this church. There's a fresh anointing, God, on the invitation, God. There's a fresh fire, God. Lord, on the collaboration and the teamwork, God. Lord, to win people, God, and win souls in Jesus' name. I thank you, Father God, that you release this in the atmosphere, God. I pray, God, specifically for Jeff and Robbie, God. Lord, even in their vernacular, there's something going to come from your history of ministry that's going to significantly empower this church to the next level, the next expression, the next experience. It's maybe something that's been not ignored, but just a little more dormant. And God's going to begin to release it in you, Jeff. And you're going to know what it is in that time. And it's going to just equip this group because you are an equipper sir. You are the kind of pastor that says, don't figure it out. I'll equip you and help you figure it out. Or I'm wired kind of the other way. And you're going to equip people and you're going to understand the enigmas and the things that need to be untangled in order to reach this, this Pondere area. Priest, I mean all the way to Sandpoint. All the way like, like Bonner's Ferry. I drove up there the other day when I was praying and I just, I sense that there's just going to be like outreach going in. Even between service as I was back with Jason for a minute I literally saw like when the summer rush comes like there's going to be I don't know who it is in this room there's going to be somebody with boats and that's a really strange thing to say but I don't know there's going to be boats boats are going to be involved in the summer rush here because that's when prosperity comes to this valley that's when that place of grace comes and you're going to see a tremendous outpouring of reaching people that are far from God just because people have boats I don't know what that totally means I did see a pastor at one time 
time he had Boat Church. And, uh, I, 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 and, and I just see it coming to this area and this region. And I just want to equip all of you guys. Don't hunt alone, man. Don't hunt alone. Don't hunt just with Christians. Don't hunt just with people that know Jesus. Don't hunt just with your small group. When, when you go out and play golf, don't just play golf with the pastors. Don't just play golf with people that you know that know Jesus. Let them see you for who you are. Because the message is not different than the messenger. And they will praise and glorify God because you included them and showed them that what culture has showed them is not who Christians are. You are who a Christian is. And so I release that in Jesus' name. Amen? Okay. I want to pray for one more group in here. One more group, and then I'm going to turn it over to Pastor Jeff. If you are here this morning, and you are not at peace with God, but you want to be. Maybe at one time in your life, you knew peace, and you knew peace with the Lord, and you were certainty, certain of your salvation, but you are far from that place today. There's a gap. There's a chasm. There's a distance. If you're further from God than you want to be, and you want to close that distance, I'm going to pray for you right now. I'm not going to point you out or embarrass you or anything like that but I do want to know who's praying so heads up eyes wide open there's this cool scripture that if we acknowledge Jesus before our before others then Jesus acknowledges us before the father and you want to be acknowledged before the father by Jesus you want your name written in the book of life So if you're further from God than you want to be and you want to close that gap, man, don't head out those doors without praying with me this morning. Fair? So if that's you and you need to close it up, just lift your hand so I know who I'm praying with. Amen, ma'am. Yes, sir, young man. Who else? All right, man. Right over here. Okay, brother. Okay, sister. Right back there. Amen. I see you and I see you and I see you. Are you guys together? Nice. Okay. All right. If you lifted your hand, maybe you're praying this prayer for the first time. Maybe one of your friends invited you and who knew, right? Who knew that it... Who knew? If you're praying it for the first time, man, I want you to pray with all your heart. If you're praying it, maybe you're farther from God and you remember when, man, you know that, that sincerity. Pray with all the sincerity that you have. The rest of you, man, let's support these guys making this decision. Amen. Say these words. Say Jesus. Come on, say Jesus like you mean it. Jesus. I give you my life today. My heart. My everything. Forgive me, God, for all the ways that I've rejected you. I come back into love with you. Into your grace, your mercy, your healing, your forgiveness and your truth in Jesus' mighty name.